Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Yeah, that's pretty creepy, isn't it? You know, there's there are always those scary movies that you remember the first time you saw them, right? The Exorcist probably is on a lot of people's list. Blair Witch, I remember that. Amityville Horror, oh yeah, that was pretty scary. And definitely, definitely Poltergeist. And sometimes the stories in real life about these movies can be just as scary. Really, Poltergeist is a great example of that. To start with, it was very loosely kind of inspired by a true story from 1958 and a family living on Long Island. And then there were all the mysterious and strange things that happened to members of the cast in the years after the original Poltergeist came out. Now, for more on all of this, we're joined now by Megan Alda, host of the podcast Haunted History who has been talking about the history of Poltergeist. Uh, The movie really fascinates me because it is um, a combination of eerie and unexplainable things that happen on set and a lot of unrelated deaths. So I think that has kind of instilled in us that the movie is cursed. Okay. I think that's... Yeah. Let's, let's recap this for people here, too, because like while you and I both know exactly the movie that we're talking about, what is the movie Poltergeist? Uh, So in short, without giving anything away, uh, it's about a family that live in a very um, cookie-cutter suburban home, and they soon become invaded by evil spirits. You make it sound so simple, but Megan, it's really not that simple. (laughs) No, no. (laughs) It was terrifying when that movie movie came out. I remember seeing it, and it was so scary. Um, and it was, it was like, I guess, a little bit like, um, you know, Amityville Horror, but kind of took it to a new yeah. level, a little bit more mainstream than Amityville Horror. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, same thing. And uh, they keep coming out with more of them, which shows how much people really like. <laughs> people really are loving the, the experience of, you know, the idea, I think, that, you know, your house can be haunted and you can have yeah. malevolent ghosts. Through yeah, the TV. Haunting you. But let's talk Mm -hmm. about the haunting of this movie, because the reason why it still fascinates so many people, including you, is that there is this idea that the the people who made the movie are actually cursed. Why is that? Yes. So there were actually a number of things that happened during the filming. So even aside from the four unrelated deaths, which I think on its own, having four unrelated deaths, that's a pretty eerie thing to have happen on one film franchise. Um, So aside from that, um, objects were moved routinely when cast would show up to set. You know, the next morning pictures were lopsided. Things weren't in the places that they left them, even though the site was empty for the evening. Um, There were also several accidents. People were injured throughout the filming of all three movies. And a lot of cast members even said that they saw apparitions and different entities and they could feel things. So I think given all of that, you know, added together, um, it's, you know, probable that the the film set was cursed. (laughs) I don't think it's far-fetched. I don't think it's far-fetched. I know. I'm sorry. I shouldn't laugh. But like the way you said that so seriously, (laughs) like, yeah, it was cursed. Um, The stories that kind of got to me when was the ones that involved a couple of the people who starred in the movie. Um, Let's start with the murder of Dominique Dunn. Yes. So Dominique Dunn, just months after the release of the first Poltergeist, so that was in 1982, Dominique, who portrayed Dana, she was unfortunately tragically murdered. She was strangled in her driveway by her ex-boyfriend. Yeah, awful, awful case. Her father was the famous author. Yeah, Dominique Dunn. Yeah, absolutely terrible. So I think that was so shocking to everybody. Um, who on the set, not only just on the set, but just us, you know, people watching it, 
And I think that was like the first, wow, like how can, you know, when something like that happens, I think to a public figure or a celebrity, I think automatically that kind of garners a little bit of interest, you know? Right. And then she wasn't the only one to die mysteriously, was she? No, she wasn't. Um, so Heather O'Rourke, so she plays uh, Carol Ann, the youngest. She ended up passing away at just the age of 12. So she went through cardiac arrest. She had um, septic shock. She had intestinal issues. Um, so she ended up passing away just months month before the release of Poltergeist 3. So that was extremely shocking. <laughs> and then two other cast members from Poltergeist Two um, also ended up passing away within a few years of the film's release. So Julian Beck, who portrayed Kane, passed away from stomach cancer at the age of 60, just a few months before the film's premiere. And Will Sampson, the actor who performed The Exorcism, uh, died at 53 from mal- malnutrition and kidney failure. Right. And Will Sampson's so, interesting because he actually believed that there was some kind of paranormal thing going on, didn't he? Completely, completely. He he went to the set and did an exorcism, and apparently after he was finished, the cast members um, ended up saying that they felt better. They felt better, like, you know, every bad energy had been removed, and so that kind of even solidified even more that they thought there was some kind of evil, um, you know, entity lurking around. Yeah, what were some of those weird things that happened during filming? Um, so, like I said, that was kind of the things that were moving. Um, They saw apparitions. There were a ton of freak accidents. Um, There was one thing in particular, and it was Steven Spielberg's choice to use real skeletons during the filming of the first one. Um, That was kind of a big deal. I personally feel that that definitely leaves some room for, you know, evil spirits to um, maybe want to take some revenge. Um, actress Jo Beth Williams, she actually ends up falling into uh, a pool only to discover that it's filled with real human skeletons. So she didn't know it at the time, but I guess uh, rubber skeletons would have been more expensive to use. That is so, <laughs> so creepy, though. That up, is so creepy. Yeah. So it was, the, it was the skeletal remains of 13, of 13 humans. Which is wow. wild. I just, <laughs> yeah, when I heard that, I was like, are you kidding? I don't understand. Um, but yeah, they found a way to make it happen. And I personally feel like using real skeletons has to bring some kind of negative energy. I mean, I would think that it would anyway. I, I don't want anyone using my skeleton. Wow. For filming. <laughs> yeah. And right? jo- I was reading about this too. And Joe Beth Williams was saying this wasn't like a one day shoot either. That scene, it took like four or five days, she said, to shoot. So yeah. she was kind of in there with these skeletons around her for four or five days. And she had assumed that they were prop skeletons. She found she assumed, out yeah, later that they, right. they were she real. assumed they were props, but she still had a very uneasy feeling about them. And I think at one point, Spielberg um, actually had to get in with her to calm her down because she was having so much anxiety about it. Um, and then when she found out later... That they were that they were real skeletons. She was like, "Oh my gosh, no that wonder I so was, much. Yeah. you know, that does completely explain it." So, and so, I mean, do you think there are other movies as well who that are haunted? There are. I know that there are. I'm not super familiar with them, but I know that there are some rumors surrounding The Exorcist, for example. Oh yes. Um, so yeah, I definitely think that it's something I'm going to explore more of. That's for sure. But I, I definitely know that this is not the only one, and probably won't be the only one. <laughs> that's a good way to set up future episodes of your podcast. Yes, Megan, exactly. Megan, Megan exactly. thanks so much for your time on that. No worries. Thank you. That's Megan Alda, host of the podcast Haunted History, talking about the haunted history of the movie Poltergeist, and not just like in the movie itself. But what happened to members of the cast afterwards, like just think about that. Joe Beth Williams, the actress, has ta- told the story many times over the years. The movie's producers and like Steven Spielberg, they've never confirmed it, but she has talked openly about it where she said that scene in the swimming pool with all the skeletons, those were real skeletons because it turns out apparently those are cheaper for the production to get, or they were back in the day, cheaper for them to get versus actual fake skeletons, which is bizarre when you think about it, right? How freaky is that? This is Mornings with Simi. Look at me, Damien. It's all fake.
for you. I literally just gasped when I heard that. That movie terrified me as a child. Our Scott Shantz is with us this morning. Did it not terrify you? All of these movies that we're talking about, I watched them way too young. Way too young. And they freaked. Yes. Abs- I still have trauma from so many of these movies. Oh, The Omen, I definitely have trauma from. And I'm talking the original yeah, yeah, one. Yeah. The original one. Yeah. For me, like you mentioned Amityville Horror. Oh. Like that one. Oh, man. And then Terrifying. I actually don't think. I think that I saw a documentary around the house in Amityville after I saw the movie. And that made me realize that like a documentary, is this real? This is real. And I really lost it. I still, I can see like images from that documentary in my head. It's so, so bad. See, there you go. We are all traumatized by this kind of stuff. So uh, for a moment, we're going to talk about something that doesn't have to do with your childhood trauma, or maybe it does. I think it kind of does. We'll talk about leaving the house because Scott and I were both very amused by this story that we saw over the weekend about this court case involving a mother who decided that she'd had enough of her two sons living at home and she wants them out. Yeah, so this happened in a little town in northern Italy. A mother actually had to go to court and like get legal proceedings involved to have her two sons aged 40 and 42 evicted from her house. And in the court proceedings, like in the paperwork, she refers to them as parasites. Her Ouch. own sons, parasites. That's going to be awkward at Christmas. Yeah, yeah, totally. She says they've been living there, like not, not contributing financially or contributing in any other way, just kind of, you know, leeching off of her and that she's had enough. And she's had enough. It. This is the thing that yeah. gets me about this story is that the sons, rather than be like, mom, mom, okay, we'll do something. All right. Like we'll clean up. We'll do this, whatever. We'll they chip s- in. Yeah. yeah. No, they still won't do anything, but they still fought it in court saying that uh, par- Italian parents in particular have an obligation to look after their children. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And the mom addressed that and she was like, yeah, we do have an obligation up until a certain age. Like once you become an adult, you have to learn to, you I, know, I feel leave like the nest. 40 is a good line. Oh, I think the line <laughs> comes before 40. Okay, like, 30. I'll say 30. <laughs> well, given the way house prices and everything is sure. out there rent today, I'm, I'm going to say I'm being super generous. I think so. 30 is a line. But these guys, also, you got to contribute. You can't not contribute. Oh, for sure. Yeah. It's funny that you mentioned 30 because actually that is the average age that people in in Italy, where this happened, move out. I don't know about you, Simi. I moved out of my house when I was 25, but I had done a lot of things before. Like I went away for six months traveling, came back, went away for another six months, stayed home for six months. And when I was home, if I did, if I wasn't in post-secondary education, I was paying rent like yes. F- yes. hard hard and fast rule there you go so this to see this i was like these guys have had it way too easy for way too long and like they clearly don't appreciate their mother because yes they fought it which of course is going to make the relationship so terrible i just this is it's just so crazy to me the whole thing i'm like where is your self-respect i'm curious as to people's story on this one about like when were you told that it was time for you to leave the house or was there a point where your parents said time for you to start paying rent like, what are yeah. the rules, I would say, in your house? Like, I would love to hear this. Simi at cknw.com. It's kind of the same rules about the trick-or-treating rules, right? Like right. The, you reach an age where you kind of max out on this. Like, what is the age where you would say to somebody at the door, you're too old to be trick-or-treating? Yeah, you know what? That's kind of a different thing for me. I think that if somebody shows up to my house and they've put in the effort to put on a costume and they're trying to, like, enjoy a celebratory event, they're getting candy, you know, I'm willing to give candy to anyone who puts in the effort. Really? A 20-year-old? If they're dressed up, I think I would. Yeah, <laughs> I think I would. What about what about? Hey, I everybody, feels, go to Scott's house today. It, it feels so Scroogey to to be like, sorry, no, get out of it. It's just a candy bar, it, and it's a it's Halloween is for fun. It's got to be a fun. good costume though. Like it's got to. And also, you don't know how old kids are these days. You don't know. Kids are tall. My kids are both very very tall for their age, and yet they might have like they were 12, 13 years old and six feet tall. So yeah. you don't know. So I I would obviously just be like, sure, here, take take this candy. Plus, I don't want my house to get egged. There is that. There is that. Yes, we'd love to hear your stories on this. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. It is time for us to check in with Vaughn Palmer on this Tuesday morning. Good morning, Vaughn. Good morning, Simi. Happy Halloween and happy birthday. Thank you so much. Do you like Halloween? How do you feel about this day? I love Halloween. I love Halloween. It's great fun. 
Um, hmm. For a few years, I always used to watch Young Frankenstein on Halloween because, you know, scary movies are great and uh, they really can scare the living daylights out of you. Uh, Young Frankenstein is one of the funniest movies ever made. And usually you can find some place where it's showing on Halloween night. So good. So good. Great choice. Uh, let's talk about what's going on out there because Premier David Eby, it feels like, has been very busy the last couple of days. Well, he's an activist premier and clearly in charge of his government. He and the premier's office uh, pretty much decide what's going on. He's more activist, I would say, than John Horgan and less into delegating. So, yes, a very busy day yesterday. Uh, the listener will know that I've occasionally been critical of Premier David Eby, so I want to start off with an accolade because I think what he did last evening in Vancouver uh, is really important, and he acted quickly. So Eby announced last evening that henceforth uh, Holocaust education will be mandatory in the curriculum in BC's high schools. So they're going to design a unit for it, uh, I think it's uh, 25, uh, 2025 school year. It takes a while to get these things in place. But E.B. said, look, I know that uh, some teachers have already been teaching this. He said that there has been some optional material in the curriculum. It's not going to be mandatory. He says it's necessary mm-hmm. um, because, and, and the government quoted surveys on this, and I suppose we shouldn't be surprised, but I went, oh, it was a pretty disturbing Um, A significant number of young people and more than a few adults are either unaware of the full dimensions of the Holocaust or they think they're exaggerated. And of course, if they've been spending too much time on the wrong websites, uh, they think it's a hoax. So uh, very important. And look, Simi, as I said, how quickly the government acted. So it's only been three weeks since that Hamas rampage of rape and murder and kidnapping and the premier is saying there's a wave of anti-Semitism out there. And one of the ways we're going to combat it, try to deal with it, confront it, is to add Holocaust education to the school curriculum in British Columbia. I am kind of surprised it wasn't already in there. I guess I was a little bit too. Although, you know, I was talking to uh, Keith Ballery of Global last evening and we were going, well, you know, I was in long, long time ago in school. He's much younger than I am, as you are. And I must admit, I don't really remember much uh, about that in school. I learned a lot about the Holocaust from reading history. But uh, I don't know as though uh, maybe we shouldn't be that surprised. Uh, You know, our culture is fragmented. Uh, There's a staggering amount of misinformation out there. And you only need to have uh, talked to good friends who are Jewish to say, oh, man, you know, anti-Semitism hasn't gone. It still comes back to confront them. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's there's the strangest kind of misinformation out there, I think, manifested by, I don't know, I can't think of the right adjective to describe it, these equations of Israel with Nazism. Like, yeah. How far miseducated do you need to be to to make that comparison? So, again, you know, the premier, I think, deserves credit on this one. And I think it will help in the long run. Mm -hmm. The fact that he went public and said it right away last evening is itself, I think, a a tribute to David Eby. And, Simi, I noticed... Speaking as well for the government on this was Selena Robinson. And, you know, Robinson's Jewish. Uh, She's done a lot of the talking for the government. You'll know a bit of the history, Simi, that uh, Selena Robinson and David Eby weren't on the same page all the time in the John Horgan government. That's right, yeah. Uh, But full credit, again, to the premier, to including her. Um, One comment that was interesting in the global coverage last night, I thought, It's not funny, but it is ironic. Uh, One of the questions was, you know, in light of some of the comments that some of our academics, left-leaning, have made on social media, 
Maybe they need a refresher course on the Holocaust as well. Yeah, no kidding, right? Maybe. And I'm glad to see this happening. Was optional before. They're making it compulsory. And I hope teachers, I hope they were taking that information already. They're making it compulsory, but they have the option to always have it there. Yeah, and the Premier said, look, he acknowledges that uh, some of our teachers, uh, a number of our teachers have already uh, incorporated this into their teaching. Uh, and, Which is and good. that's good. Yes. And there's, you know, there's an awful lot of history out there that needs to be taught. And it's a struggle to get it all into the curriculum. I mean, and the premier referred to it last night, uh, our record with indigenous people here in British Columbia, uh, the deportation of the Japanese during the Second World War. This is not the only human rights issue that you have to teach. But I think we it's important that we recognize the Holocaust is a unique event in history and comparisons of the Holocaust to anything else are themselves grounded in ignorance. We're back with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun this morning. Now, yesterday, Vaughn, there was a big press conference, a retail coalition got together saying they need help when it comes to shoplifting. What did the premier have to say about that? Yeah, the premier was asked about it and acknowledged they have a point, said he looks forward to meeting with them, welcomes suggestions that they have, pointed out that the government has recently is now implementing a plan that will at least compensate uh, small business for vandalism in the downtown region, especially, so they can apply for that, the government website. I think the applications uh, open next month. So, But the premier didn't dispute that there's a serious problem with shoplifting, organized shoplifting, violence against staff that try to stop shoplifting. And you only need to go up and down the West Coast, Simi, and you'll discover that our neighbors to the south, uh, San Francisco, Portland, Seattle in particular, uh, merchants are moving out of downtown because enough is enough. They can't afford to be there. They can't protect their staff. And gangs are now shoplifting. So, we're not there yet. Uh, we did have a report, Simi, last week that London Drugs was thinking of moving out of downtown. They said they're not. I wouldn't say that it'll never happen, but the premier was asked about it. The other thing the premier said, and this is a, a standard David Eby answer on the issue of public safety, and it has some merit. He was asked again, and he said, look, we need bail reform. And he, David Eby, has been calling for bail reform for over a year. And uh-huh, he referred to something, Simi, you and I talked about last week. Mm-hmm. Our attorney general went went to the Senate committee. She addressed them virtually. The uh, Senate committee is looking at bail reform legislation. She faced some tough questions from the senators who don't believe that this is a real problem that needs to be solved. Uh, it's real skepticism. Uh, Eby took a nice shot at the Senate, I thought. He said uh, he's never been more sympathetic to the NDP's longtime call for abolition of the Senate. He's looked over the transcript. He cannot believe that the senators, some of them, don't get it, why we need to make it harder for repeat violent offenders to get bail. Okay, so there's that that's still going on. But let's also talk about the other federal government issue that continues to cause a lot of problems here in B.C., this having to do with the uh, pulling back of the carbon tax on home heating oil. Yeah, a real uh, disdain from the premier for what Ottawa did last week, this massive flip-flop on the carbon tax. The premier described it as a rush job, poorly thought out. And he can't quite believe that they left out British Columbia. He points out that they're offering better incentives for uh, switching uh, to heat pumps, electric heat pumps away from fossil fuels, but they're only offering it to Atlantic Canada. He said, if you're going to build national support for carbon tax as a response and and Climate assistance as a response to climate action, you've got to include everybody. So he says the province is going to be pressuring Ottawa to make the same deal available to British Columbians. Uh, BC's been on uh, the home heating, uh, sorry, the, uh, the heat pump promotion for a while. I uh, was asked point blank about the other thing Ottawa did last week, which was exempting some provinces, residents of some provinces from 
the carbon tax on home heating for three years. Uh, BC is not going there based on what the New Democrats said yesterday. They don't, uh, there's not a huge number of British Columbians use home heating oil to heat their homes with oil. It's natural gas out here. Uh, but he said, look, uh, we are not going to start going backwards on carbon taxation. Uh, his implication being, of course, Simi, that that's exactly what Ottawa is doing. And, uh, you know, the premier, very little patience with the rush job cynicism of what Ottawa did last week. Yeah, and it seems to be lingering, doesn't it? Like there's, yeah. it's, it gets worse, it feels like, every day. They're outrageous kind of building. Yeah, yeah I mean, you know, uh, you had the opposition saying British Columbians should get the same deal. Yeah. Premier pushed back on that uh, more than a bit. But we now have voices in the legislature. Really, the, the last time you had members of the B.C. legislature standing up and saying, get rid of the carbon tax, it was New Democrats in 2008 when the Gordon Campbell government brought it in. New Democrats now support the carbon tax. You had the conservatives yesterday standing up and saying, get rid of the carbon tax. Uh <laughs> Bruce Bandman of the Conservatives said, climate change is real. And he got a round of applause from the House. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was funny. <laughs> because, you know, but he said, look, uh, the way to deal with uh, climate change is not to impoverish British Columbians. So the Conservatives are opposed to the carbon tax. And uh, EB took a shot at the BC United for saying, well, you know, you guys are now calling for home heating oil relief uh, and natural gas relief. He says, you're changing your position on the carbon tax, too. And he says, maybe I should listen, look down the aisle and listen to the conservatives to figure out what the next position is going to be for BC United. Oh, so yikes. Yeah. this thing is back as a political issue, Simi, after really we went through three elections uh, where it was not an issue in BC. All of the parties in the B.C. legislature supported carbon taxation. They argued about how the money should be spent and whether there should be tax relief. But they all agreed on a carbon tax. And this is one of the things that Justin Trudeau has triggered, I think, Simi, is yeah. he's making it into a national issue all over again. I know. When we thought the question was settled, and it turns out now it is not, thanks to that. Uh, Vaughn, thank you. Bye-bye, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Do you stop shoplifting? I mean, genuine question here, because an awful lot of retailers, and not just here in Metro Vancouver, would like to know they are struggling with this problem. So there's a new public safety coalition called SOS Save Our Streets. It's come together to try and well, lobby the government for an answer on this. You've been hearing a lot about it in the news. They had a press conference yesterday. Well, joining us now to talk more about it is Ian Tossenson, President and CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. They are part of this coalition. Ian, thanks for being here. Hang on, Simi. Happy birthday to you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you Thank you. Best day You're of the year. Welcome. Best day of the year to have your birthday. It really is. Everybody's having it a is. good time. Um, okay, let's talk about this shoplifting problem. Mm. What have you heard from retailers out there about how bad this is? Well, I think the, um, the, the group, the SOS group that came together yesterday, I was stunned myself. And we were part of the beginning. It was brought together, you know, essentially by, you know, London Drugs and Save On Foods. And I sort of thought, oh, here we go, another committee. But it's taken on so much uh, life of its own, and there is so many people. I think yesterday I said to someone, we're probably representing well in excess of a million employees of all the businesses oh, that were wow. there yesterday. And uh, and and it ranges semi all across uh, British Columbia. So you know whether it's in the restaurant sector or the retail sector, story after story after story of you know, businesses that are just spending so much money on security and uh, protecting your staff. It has implications on us being able to hire staff and get staff and keep staff because quite often they don't feel safe. I find it really interesting too is that, you know, one of the, one of the stats that came out is that uh, the cost to BC families of $500 a year per family because of the cost of security, extra security and prices and all the different things that happen uh, with with all the violence and crime and shoplifting that's going on. So it's a real problem. Um, so the groups, the very diverse, very diverse group, nonpartisan, we're all chipping in here to talk to government. And our request is simply, it's not prescriptive. We're saying, you've got the resources. 
you've got the expertise, you've got the insights, so we leave it to you, but we've got to solve this problem right across British Columbia. Right. So, But that, that's my question with this then, because obviously it is a problem. You can see it. I see it myself, you know, when walking around. What can be done to solve this? I don't think we have the answer to that. I mean, I think um, you were talking earlier about bail reform. That probably has a lot to do with it. We we know that uh, uh, statistically in, this, in a lot of big cities in the States that a lot of the crime is, is um, committed um, it, you know, in, in, in being perpetrated by a very small group of the same people. Over organized, and over. right? And like it's organized. Yeah. And it's, I think it's happening here. Um, I don't know. I mean, you know, how do you, how do you deal with this? I talked to a restaurant yesterday in Duncan and I thought, he said to me, you know what? Um, we got fired by our security company. I said, no, no. I, oh, what are you talking about? He goes, we got fired by our security company. I said, well, how does that happen? He said, there's so many times that we have to call them. That's outside of our contractual terms. They can no longer afford to service us. Oh. And I went, ah, and then he goes, I painted my bathroom. It was full of graffiti. And then two days later, it was, it was graffitied again. I have a, a subway next door. He said we, we had done a bathroom renovation, and the next day all the plumbing was ripped out. So it's just, go, you know, and then on the, on the front of the province today was, you know, employees having to wear j- uh, jackets to prevent stabbings. I mean, it, it really is an issue. So what we're saying to government is you got to solve it. We can't solve this. I mean, we, you know, I mean, what, what we're doing right now is incurring a lot of costs with extra security, um, having to pay for broken windows and all that kind of stuff that you hear about regularly. And so the government's going to have to decide what they're going to do. We're going to support them, right. but they've got the power and they've got the resources to do it. Now, I know we talked about the vandalism program for businesses. Uh, BC Chamber of Commerce is going to yeah. be administering that. That's that's happening. But I wonder, are stores in restaurants considering other measures? Like at some point, I guess regular customers are going to feel like they are being lumped in here. But sometimes I guess stores are going to have to take those measures so that they're safer. So it's not, it's, it's very common to hear um, restaurants hire, talking about hiring security. Um, you know, restaurants downtown in Vancouver, but, you know, it, it could be in Victoria or Kelowna or wherever, uh, are having to really be conscious of who's hanging out in front of their restaurants and doing what. And uh, I, I'm trying to clear those areas so that we, we don't lose the confidence of the public. Uh, I get concerned about these sort of things happening and the effect on tourism. Um, and what tourists think, I mean, they read about this stuff, they go, gee, you know, how safe is it up there? So, you know, I think it's time. Um, you know, uh, I, I really applaud all these groups coming together because everybody's been talking about it for several years, particularly since the pandemic um, ended, or sort of it, I guess. But um, And now there's, there's a force, and, and we've got the attention of the Premier, and he said that's great. Um, on the point of the um, like dollars available yeah. for for you know to help for small business, you know, I said to someone yesterday, you know, two thousand dollars won't even get you someone to fix your locks. So it's it's nice that the government's trying to do it, but the the, the problem is so much more expensive than that. So, dude, um, are you gonna are we gonna start seeing more measures though? Like I know we've seen these in Europe if people have traveled where you can't even leave any store without sh- having your receipt scanned. Right, like you, it's, yeah. That that's pretty higher security stuff. Yeah, yeah. the Costco model, and um, it, it's you know, I mean, it's you know, for us, it's it's particularly alarming because we're in hospitality, and if you're you walk in a retail store and in good faith, you buy something and you pay for it, and you walk out and someone's going like, I almost don't trust you. Like it's just it's we we got to get rid of this. We got to end this, and I think we can end it um, by you know, again, I think the the intention of this is to have one voice. With, with aggressive, determined action by government and get the word out. And I think it will start to be able to push back here. Are restaurants, and, um, are restaurants Ian, mm-hmm. seeing this too? Like, are people dining yeah. and dashing? Like, what's going on? No, it's not dining and dashing so much. A lot of it, uh, Simi, is in, in quick service restaurants where uh, um, you'll see that, uh, particularly in the downtown areas of, of the cities throughout British Columbia, uh, the washrooms are being used for drug use. You know, people go in there and... You know, I guess they use them for personal hygiene. Who knows? But um, or they just get angry and just wreck them. So we've seen a lot of that. We've seen a lot of instances where staff have been harassed. Um, You know, we've seen instances of that in Vancouver quite regularly. And, um, you know, you've got 16 year old uh, 
kids standing at a counter and being harassed by people that are really having some difficult social problems. So yeah, um, even downtown, some of the better restaurants are really concerned about people's, you know, doing drugs out front, um, you know, smoking weed, doing it, whatever they want to do, because they can do that. Um, but it just doesn't, you know, it doesn't set the right tone when you go into a restaurant and you've got to sort of walk through this maze of people. So all that stuff will be, I'm, I'm sure, addressed by the government. And as I said, I think the uh, it was it was nice to see the premier sort of responded to this yesterday. All right, we'll see what happens with that. Ian, thanks so much for talking to us. Yeah, and have a great birthday. Oh, thank you so much. You are so nice to me. That is Ian Tostenson, president and CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. They are part of this coalition that has come together called Save Our Streets, SOS. Uh, they're formed by prominent retailers and community groups, and they, they're wanting to raise awareness about what they consider to be a crisis of violent crime, vandalism, and shoplifting in the province, and they are calling on the government to help them to address these public safety concerns more. They don't know what exactly would help. They just want attention focused on this. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Here in BC, shellfish are a very important industry, but shellfish hatcheries are facing some significant challenges. They've got annual mortality events that are causing lots of problems, things like marine heat waves, uh, infectious agents, ocean acidification, climate change, you name it. This is all putting a big strain on our shellfish hatcheries. And that threatens the overall aquaculture industry too, which is a pretty big one here on the West Coast, right? So we're going to talk this morning about Deep Bay Marine Field Station. They're conducting what they call a selective breeding program. How does this work? What are they doing? Well, Dr. Timothy Green is with us now, the Canada Research Chair in Shellfish Health and Genetics. Dr. Green, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So how do we try to make shellfish more resilient? What can we do? Well, the, the first thing we're really trying to do is understand whether or not they can adapt um, to all the climate change stresses that you earlier mentioned. Um, you know, oysters are under a lot of, you know, environmental stress. We've got, you know, a warming uh, environment. Um, not only is it seawater slightly rising in temperature, you have these heat dome events um, that are, are really, you know, quite impactful. We have things like the atmospheric river. We have ocean acidification. And then we have new disease agents and things like that that have been brought into our region with international shipping. And so really trying to understand, can oysters adapt to each one of these stresses alone? but also how will they adapt to multiple stresses all at once. So we do lots of experiments where we you know, challenge oysters uh, to see whether or not they can or cannot survive with mm. these you know. And what are we learning? Stresses. So we're learning that actually oysters are amazing animals. They're really, really good at adapting. So um, we now have, you know, lines of oysters, you know, sort of like a, you know, um, a phylogenetic tree that you know you have for your your family. Going back, we have something very similar for for our oysters, and so we have particular families that do particularly well uh, to most of these kinds of stresses. Okay, so, so then I actually feel yeah, feel that you know in some ways that uh, you know the Pacific oyster will be able to adapt. That's good news, though, right? It is great news, yeah, certainly for our industry and, and for the environment. So that's one of the things that often leaves me quite quite scared is, you know, not, not every animal has a, a selective breeding program trying to, to breed, breed resilience into that, that population. That's very true. But how do you do this? How do you spread that then? You can find out that they can adapt, but how do you make sure that now spreads? So I guess there's, um, well, wanting to go back one step to try to, explain how we, we first go through. So we, we create all these different families. They have a single male and, and female in the, in the lab. But we also know how they're related. And I mentioned that in the phylogenetic tree. And it's a bit like um, I always sort of say, if you, you've got a dairy herd and you're, you know, your output is, is the amount of milk from a cow, how do you choose the bull? And you can't go up and measure how much milk a bull creates but you can work out its genetic merit by looking at its its sisters and its mother and its you know aunts and, and so on and get an idea does that bull produce a lot of milk and we do this very much the same we come out we choose which are going to be the the ideal families that are going to survive most of these stresses but also have the growth rate that industry wants 
and then we provide those animals to local hatcheries here in BC who mass produce them after the shellfish farms. So they'll spawn them in a tank, uh, raise the little larvae that float around in the water column for about two to three weeks, and then they settle on a rock or, or an oyster shell, and then that's what's then distributed out to the to the farms that you see along the BC BC coastline. That's a lot of work. It is a lot of work. Yeah, it, it takes many many years. So. Okay, so then what about the next step? So if you can do this with oysters, what else do you look at? So oysters is, is you know, the biggest of our industries here on, on the coast, but we know from, you know, a lot of our First Nation uh, partners that we, we team up with, as well as a lot of really remote communities that oysters, um, you know, they're not as high value as maybe scallops. And so when you're trucking large amounts of live product, that becomes very costly compared to maybe scallops. And now we're starting to roll out the breeding program. Can we actually breed scallops that are going to be resistant to all of these these same stresses because they're under the same same issues and so on and so on? You that know, would be huge, though. I mean, if you could, if you could Dr. Green do that for scallops, like, like that would be for the industry, that would be huge. It wouldn't because we've gone from, you know, an industry uh, that was worth about $3 million a year on the coastline to almost nothing. So... Um, we're really hoping that you know we can open up large new areas of water for people to farm. You know, a lot of these remoter communities, um, you know, give them the opportunity to have this you know low impact form of aquaculture uh, to you know create jobs and economic um, opportunities in these more remote communities. Right. Well, it sounds good to me, Dr. Green. Thanks so much yep. for telling us about it this morning. Yep. Thank you for having me. That's Dr. Timothy Green, Canada Research Chair in Shellfish Health and Genetics. They are hard at work trying to build resiliency into our oysters and next to our scallops to help that industry thrive in the years ahead. This is Mornings with Simi. I love a good news story. I love it even more when it comes from my hometown of Surrey. So allow me to introduce you this morning to some exceptional young people. Because when you think about it, many of us in grade 11 and when we were in grade 12, we were not thinking about putting machines on the moon or on Mars. But they are. It's the Leo Craft design team from Princess Margaret Secondary School in Surrey. They've got 10 students in grade 11 and 12. And they have been selected to compete in NASA's 2024 Human Exploration Rover Challenge. And oh, did I mention, they are the only Canadian team participating in this competition. That's pretty exciting, right? So let's find out what it takes. Jeevan Sandhu and Jasmeet Kordaliwal are with us this morning to talk about that. Good morning to both of you. Good morning. This is very exciting. So Jasmeet, I'm going to start with you. When did you know you wanted to work on a, pro- on a project like this? So when Jeevan actually approached us all on the like two days before the due date, and we all wait, whoa, whoa, were, like, two days like, before the due yeah. date. What Jeevan? What yeah. was up with that? <laughs> so we started this competition like uh, one year ago. We saw YouTube videos online, and we kind of just like forgot about it. But then, uh, just like two days before the due date, we kind of just thought of it again, and then we took it up. Okay, so Jasmine, what happened? You thought, okay, we can do this. Mm-hmm, definitely. So he asked me, he was like, hey, like, I know it's due in two days, but I think that definitely if we all work together, it's definitely attainable, right? So then within those two days, that span of two days, we all started you know, relentlessly working on the proposal, working day and night on it. We used to call like every like two hours and say, guys, like, what's the progress on it right now? And then we submitted it like an hour before the due date. <laughs> yeah, it was definitely a roller coaster of emotions, right? <laughs> And I remember sitting like like an hour before it was due in block three, we all sitting in the library trying to figure out like how exactly just editing out seven pages, and yeah, and then we were just <laughs> elaborating on all the stuff we were writing down, and then yeah. I didn't think it was possible for me to love this story even more, but I do because you guys <laughs> did it in this fashion. So, Jeevan, sum up your proposal for me. Tell me what you guys did. Yeah, so we basically outlined a uh, uh, human-powered rover to NASA. This would see uh, two individuals. Along with it, we built like a task tool, which would like uh, do simulated tasks, which we would possibly have on like the moon or Mars. And then our vehicle uh, has to have an automatic view. So oh, Jeevan, I can hardly hear you. I can hardly hear you. Tell me more, louder. So uh, our wheel basically has like a non-pneumatic wheel, so there's no air in it, which is important for like uh, places like the moon and Mars. And that was self-supporting, and that's one of the things that NASA really likes. 
and are also like uh, designed to give two individuals and a people of like having uh, oh. Oh, you were kind of falling off there, so I'm going to ask you, Jasmine. Can you? So, how do you even get to this? How do you? How do you start planning for something like this? Honestly, it starts off with forming a team first, which is exactly what Jeevan and the rest of the guys did, because the three of them were the ones to come up with the idea. So, him, Mehul, and Omar, and then they reached out to us, and then they combined the rest of the group together. And then, honestly, at first, none of us really thought that we were going to make it, only because of such short notice, right? But thing is, Jeevan, as you saw, Jeevan, as you saw, this NASA her challenge last year. And I think May, and then he came across it while scrolling on YouTube, and then he wanted to do it last year, but then again he was too late because it happened in April of last this year. But he came across it in May, right? And this year he wanted to do it. He's been talking about it all the summer, and then he asked us two days before the due date, and the rest is history. Okay, so tell me, both yeah. of you, what was it like in that moment that you found out you'd been selected? We were really excited. Yeah. Like we really didn't think we were going to get selected. <laughs> yeah. Came to school afterwards. And we we're like really excited, like out of this world. But like we're excited. We also know that there's a lot of work out of us. Mm-hmm. Like we actually have to build the rover, test it, but two drivers, and then actually go to Alabama in April and actually test this in front of the not the engineers. Yeah, there's a lot of work to be done. Yes, but it sounds like you guys are good under pressure, clearly. So there's a lot of work. Where are you right now in the project then? So you have to build the rover and make sure it works. So how far along are you? Yeah, so right now we're working on this uh, 30-page proposal report, and this is going to be sent to NASA in like the first two weeks of uh, November. And then this will be actually critiqued by NASA's engineers and, des- and designers, like showing all the flaws. And then based on that, we'll start constructing a rover and actually testing it. Oh, boy. Okay, so, uh, Jeevan, is this what you want to do for the rest of your life? Like, are you thinking, yeah, I would love to do this? Yeah, I think I would love to do this. <laughs> it's one of the things is like, I've really found this, um, exciting before this, like I was like when I was little, I used to watch like the SpaceX launches, still do, and then I just thought this really cool, and then I started working on this now, and I really enjoy it. Uh, I, this isn't what I was thinking of doing in the future, but like possibly is an idea that I have in the back of my head now. And what about you, Jasmine? Is this the future for you? Um, could be. Who knows, right? <laughs> Nice. I think it just depends on how this goes. So you're leaving your options open. Okay, I applaud that. I applaud that. Now, I know you guys need some help. You're raising money as well. You you need some donations. Jeevan, what do you need the donations for? Yeah, so we need a total of around $50,000 right now. And this is what uh, will help us get to Alabama, uh, ship our rover, actually build the rover, and also go through the testing steps. And this will also um, help us uh, with STEM engagement, which is one of the things we're working on as part of this challenge. We also want to involve the community. It's not just a project that we're working on. We want to help everybody in our community, like the elementary schools. We're going to hold the camps and show them what we're doing. And I think that would be really cool for the community as well. Yeah, it would be. Jasmine, where can people find out more about this to help out? Yes, we have a website. It's called leocraft.ca, and there's a donation link there. So if anybody's interested in donating money, please donate over there. And then, yeah, that's a lot. We just have a website. We also have an Instagram account if you want to keep up with us. And it's leocraft design. Leocraft.ca is the website. All right, so you guys, this is a lot of pressure. Are you feeling that pressure at all, Jeevan? Uh, not yet. We're just kind of just working on the design. I think the biggest like pressure right now is like securing the funding because that. That's basically like uh, what we need to start building our rover and actually like getting to Alabama with it. So besides that, we're just kind of working on the report right now. Once that's complete, we're going to start with the rover construction. And like to like make this clear, like we've been working on this outside of school hours every day. This isn't like a class. So this is something like we don't receive any funding from the school either. So this is something that we're working on like as an extracurricular club. Right. So like you would think that you'd be getting an A on that project. <laughs> you, you would hope on that so Jasmine, what is your role what do you do i'm actually on the mechanics team so my job is ensuring that everything is working the way it's supposed to and it's helping to make sure that we're also going to be working like really closely with the designer team just making sure that like, the design makes sense and that it's supposed to do the duty that it's supposed to do okay jeevan what do you do yeah. uh i'm the team lead uh, is my idea with a group uh, like a few of my friends we started like the team and then also and like the designing design with with the design like make sure like how about everybody with the design. All right, well listen, I'm gonna be rooting for you guys, okay? And we're gonna make sure that people know about your website so we can get you guys to Alabama and I, I really hope you guys win. So good luck, okay?
Thank you Thank so you. much. Have a good day. Have you a great too. Day. That is Jeevan Sendu and Jasmeet Kordaliwal. They are two of the 10 members of the team. They are the Leo Craft Design Team from Princess Margaret Secondary School in Surrey. So they're in grade 11 and 12. They have been selected to compete in NASA's 2024 Human Exploration Rover Challenge. Oh, and they are the only Canadian team participating in this competition, but they do need everybody's help. It's not going to be cheap to get these kids to Alabama to make sure that they can build the prototype of that rover and show NASA that it works. So they are raising money for the materials to build the rover and to cover their travel costs. Now, this website is, I took a look at it. It is Craft. Dot ca, And then when you click on the donate, it takes you through to the Surrey School District and helps you make that donation directly to this team. Come on, Surrey businesses, everybody out there, we can send these kids to Alabama, right? Like we always talk about keeping kids busy, showing great examples. These kids are an amazing example. So yeah, I hope that uh, I'm going to make a donation and I hope other people do too. It is leocraft.ca. This is Mornings with Simi. Looks like it's shaping up to be a rain-free day today, which is great if you're going trick-or-treating. Wonderful for the kids. But you know what? This cold, cold weather isn't really the best for people who have arthritis because when it's cold like this out there, oh, people with arthritis, they really feel it. Now, the Arthritis Society of Canada has released the State of Arthritis in Canada report cards. And to be honest, uh, almost every province and territory pretty much got a low grade when it comes to helping people who deal with arthritis. In fact... In British Columbia, we got a C, a C overall. Now, remember what it was like to get a C back when you were in school? That is not a great feeling, is it? So why are we getting a C? Well, we'll talk more about that now. Trish Barbato joins us, the president and CEO of the Arthritis Society. Trish, thanks for being here. Thank you so much and good morning. Good morning. So why did BC in particular get a C on this report card? Well, I think when you think about this report, we really wanted to raise awareness about arthritis. We have about 750,000 people in BC who have arthritis, and we really consider it to be a disease that is totally misunderstood. People think that it's an older person's disease, when in fact, most people with arthritis are under the age of 65, that it's inevitable, that it's wear and tear. In fact, the disease is really complex. There are over 100 types, autoimmune, inflammatory versions, some of them almost like rare diseases. And so this report card was really to take a look across the country at what was happening and try and bring greater awareness to some of the areas that are super important for people living with arthritis. Like what? One of the areas that we measured was wait times for surgeries. And you may have had this experience where people say, oh, I have a bad knee. I have a bad hip. But what people don't connect is that most joint replacements are due to arthritis. So most of knee replacements, 99% of them, the underlying cause is arthritis. And so when we look at those wait times, and we know that these were really exasperated during the pandemic, but you've got uh, about a third of British Columbians that are getting their hip replaced in the targeted six-month time. So there's room for improvement there. We've got about 40% of the knee replacements being done, again, within that targeted time of six months. So those are two areas right off the bat that we'd love to see some improvement on. And certainly appreciating that work has been done, but there's so much more to to do. Clearly, the majority, though, from those numbers are not getting it done in the times. So so 70% of people are not getting their knee replacement done in the targeted time? Yeah, that's right. So about... Correct. Wow, that's that's a lot of people. Yeah, about two-thirds that are not, and then um, about 45% of the knees that are not being done in that targeted time of six months. And Trish, that's a lot of suffering for people. That's a lot of pain, isn't it? It sure is. My mother-in-law just had her knee replaced yesterday, and uh, yeah, let me tell you, it is. she was waiting for about a year and a half to get that done, and in the meantime, your mobility goes down. And we know through research that people who have arthritis have an increased risk of other diseases like diabetes, like heart disease. And part of that is that limitation of their mobility. I think another myth that we have with arthritis is, well, I'm sore, so I'm going to rest. Where with arthritis, it's really the opposite. You want movement. We say motion is lotion. And so that's another area that we're recommending in the report 
is these community-based programs linked to greater public awareness. So if people had more idea of what they could and, and could and should do, shouldn't do around arthritis, that that would be extremely helpful. And then greater awareness of what community programs are available in the area. Is there any province that is doing better, would you say, or any province that was worth singling out for saying, okay, that's not bad? Uh, the greatest, the biggest, um, the C was the, the was the grade that had the highest mark was a C. So no one is doing what? great. You're telling me Way BC got the highest the mark? Yeah, wait, well, uh, uh, and a couple of other provinces got C. So wait times across the across the country are relatively poor. The access to community programs like access to physiotherapy, access to occupational therapy. Uh, there's also access to medication. The number of rheumatologists who are the specialists in this area. They're not evenly distributed, so you have lots of areas that really do not have access to the specialists that can help them with their immune-compromised or their inflammatory arthritis. So there's definitely a lot of room for improvement. Research is another one, if I could mention that. Oh, yeah. We have seen research dollars decline, so flat or decline for arthritis, and that is totally disproportionate to the burden of disease. So arthritis medication is one of the most expensive medications that um, are out there in the market that have to be paid for. There's joint replacements, another cost to the healthcare system. And so we're just looking at the totality. It's a leading cause of disability. How is that, Trish, that, that research has is not being spent enough on when so many people have arthritis and it is such a huge concern? Like, how have we fallen behind on that? Yeah, we see that as one of the reasons we did this report was really to raise awareness. And part of it, as we said right from the beginning, it's the myths. It's the misconceptions about the disease that are really stuck with people. And so needing to get out the information, really helping people to understand what arthritis is and what it isn't, I think that that'll help attract researchers to this area. It's a highly complex disease. There's so much biology that is happening, I think people would be astounded versus it's just wear and tear. It's not. So what can we do? What are some of those myths there that you mentioned? Yeah, so what what we're saying is we want provinces to look at those wait times with renewed emphasis to get them down to that target. So that is an important area. Research in arthritis, we want to see an increase in that area. We want people to know about public programs in BC, in Victoria, in Vancouver, there is the Mary Pack program. And so those are great programs that we want people to be able to access, to support them and getting to know that. There is a pilot project on the triage that has been created out of BC. We would love to see that funded and really tried. So this would be a way, very innovative, to help us make sure that the right people are going to the right place for care in a timely manner, and it'll help to improve that. So that's another program that we think would be great to have funded, as well as um, data. Data is another thing that we realized from doing this work. There is such poor data about arthritis in terms of the exact number of people who have it, the exact type they have, how long they've waited to get diagnosed, etc. All of these things are things that we would love to see improved. All right. Well, Trish, thank you so much for talking to us about it this morning. Thank you. That is Trish Barbado, President and CEO of the Arthritis Society. I think arthritis is something that people just feel like, oh, everybody gets this. I just have to suffer through it. Uh, Not necessarily the case. And clearly we have a lot of work to do to help people who have arthritis too. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about driving this morning, shall we? You just heard in traffic that it is a busy morning out there. Not surprising on Halloween, especially when it's nice out there. I think everybody wants to get to work early and then get home early so that they can take the kids trick-or-treating and just participate and have a good time, right? So I would imagine that afternoon commute is going to be busier than usual too. But today's also a very important day that you really need to pay attention behind the wheel. Lots of kids out there, lots of excitement, lots of impatient people. Now, we're going to talk more about that, too, about the ways in which we have eyes on us when we are out on the road. Joining us now is Lorraine Sommerfeld, who's an auto columnist for driving.ca. Good morning, Lorraine. Good morning, Sammy. We're talking about a, a concept that you've written about, and this is the idea of cameras being able to detect if drivers are actually using their cell phone if and when an accident occurs. Now, is this already happening, do you think? 
Oh, it is happening. Um, they're doing studies on it in the States, but two or three years ago, one of the Australian states, uh, New South Wales, they, they did a fast study and went, no, this will help us. And it's expanded in um, Australia to two additional states. And what it is, is you, you're used to red light cameras and right. you know speed cameras. It's similar to that. And as you go by, it takes pictures and then AI can sort out. And this is like a manpower saver like crazy. AI can check. And if your hand's in your phone, then it gets forwarded to an actual person who can determine, yes, this driver was holding their phone and bingo, ticket. And frankly, the way we're going, people refuse to put their phones down. And I can't believe I'm agreeing with this, but I think it's time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I love that you can't believe it. Because you said in your column that you said we are long past the point of privacy when it comes to driving. Now, do you really think so? Because people still behave badly behind the wheel, (laughs) thinking that they're the only ones out there on the road. Well, everyone thinks they're an excellent driver. If you ask somebody, and I've done this in rooms full of people, it's like, are you a good driver? I'm an excellent driver. And I can tell you all. We only see one excellent driver on the road because that's us, right? So, I mean, everybody can't be terrible. But I think we take for granted how comfortable we are in our cars or an extension of our living room and our entertainment systems. And manufacturers have a responsibility here. They've crammed so many distractions in with the screens and, you know, to put on your heat your heated seats, sometimes you have to scroll down through three screens, which is abominable. That shouldn't be allowed. But we get, we're comfortable. Our cars are incredibly comfortable and we lose focus and people are dying because of that, especially vulnerable road users who, frankly, have every right to be on the road. Pedestrians and cyclists, children, you mentioned at Halloween, the phone has to wait and yet it's not. And, the, you know, it's higher than impaired rates. And that is really bad. We're going backwards. Yeah, we're not getting the message, are we? And also cars aren't helping. You touched on this and that cars aren't helping in the fact that there are more touch screens, getting more complicated. I thought it interesting that some car manufacturers are saying, no, no, like we've reached the the peak now of touch screens. It's time to kind of dial that back a little bit. Well, journalists, (laughs) that's me and my crew. We've been asking for 10 or 12 years since they started rolling out more and more of this high tech. We're going, no, 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 we need knobs, right? Yes, knobs. Temperature, (laughs) volume. There's certain things that just intrinsically are a knob. And some of them put them back in and say, well, all right, but we're still keeping the screens. And what's happening is manufacturers, if one does it, they all have to do it. Toothpaste is out of the tube. It's not going backwards. But it's it's wrong. We're not engaging with our cars properly because we're disengaging from the road. And as a driver, your eyes should never leave the road. They just shouldn't leave the road. Everything happens in a split second. And looking down at your phone, yeah, you deserve to be caught. They didn't. You know, there's an additional study where they can track. There's a gyroscope in your phone. And when you have that UBI-based insurance, things like that, your phone can squeal on you. So can your car. It already is. And I know the car is. I definitely know the car oh, yeah. is definitely ready yeah. to tell on us at any point, right? But oh, when it comes absolutely. to the phones, like, do we have to, is that the insurance company has to step in and say, you need to sign over as part of your insurance policy, the right for us to access your phone? I'm not sure how they would play this out. These are, you know, kind of embryonic studies right now that they're looking at. The photographs are kind of basic, and we're already using that for speed and red lights and things. But the fact is that we should get used to the fact that none of this is private, like nothing. You carry a phone around. I see people yelling about, you know, protecting their speech, and they've got a phone in their pocket that is dialing up ads for them as they speak. But um, yes, there's workarounds to disconnect that, sending it back. You have to ask someone like one of my kids <laughs> tells you how to do that. But if we're talking about keeping people safe on the roads, and we've got this hard, hard line of people that will not, will not do what they're supposed to do. And I know it's a dopamine hit. It's like being addicted. Right. It's like hitting 21 at the casino. We can't do it, though. The cost is too, too high. Do you think we'll see more? Do you think in North America, we will start to see these cameras that will detect people using their phones behind the wheel? Not so much if you've been in an accident, but just like a red light camera, it can tell if you're using your phones when you're not supposed to. I believe we will. There's two big studies out of IAHS that I wrote about in the piece, and they're definitely looking at it. They're keeping a close eye on Australia to see what kind of results they're getting. And the photograph stuff, frankly, we're used to it. We know that I was always against speed cameras. I'm not anymore. People just won't do the right thing. But I think we're going to see more now that the testing is going out that way. They've already they've already looked at intersections. When you get off the highway, everyone picks up their phone. They know that. Yeah. But this is on the highway where you're going even faster. This would be able to catch that. And you probably remember there's a program out here, Hobocop. 
yes. five years ago. And if you got off the highway and it's cops looked like squeegee kids and it says, if you're reading the sign, you're about to get a ticket for using your phone. So and it, what do you think has happened though? Like, you, And you said yourself that you were once opposed to speed cameras, but you've changed your yeah. mind on that. Why? I think we're watching a generation or two of drivers becoming increasingly more angry and selfish. Uh, we're driving bigger and bigger vehicles that make us think we're invincible. And I think well, that's people, true. They're not understanding that driving and other road users, it's a team sport. It's not just about you. You wouldn't crash your, you know, your grocery cart into somebody and not apologize. Whereas you will intimidate the crap out of somebody if you're in a big pickup truck because you can. People's minds change. And the pandemic has lent. We know the anger is up. We know the desperation is up and fear. And fear comes out as anger. And we've just got drivers who are increasingly not very well trained, for starters, and angry. And that rage and anger is costing lives. And you read about you know, a death toll on something. Look at the injury number. Those are life altering injuries. You can't, we can't dismiss that fact, you know, that if you connect with steel and you're not in one as well, you know, you could be forever changed. And I just think we need to find a way to get drivers to give a damn about everybody else. And I don't know how we do that, business. though, Lorraine. You know, I, my theory I was always we need to go back to driving standard transmissions because there's no room. Well, there's that too. Nobody will steal your vehicle, but also there's no room for lack of concentration when you have a standard. Exactly. Like you really have and, to focus. No, you're absolutely right, and you understand how your car works. Like you have a better feel for it and a connection to it. And I mean, that's not going to solve everyone's problems and we're not going to have that happen. But I think we have to find respect on the road again. And we have to understand that some people have a bad day. Someone cuts you off. Don't lose your mind. Just go, you know what? Maybe they just got called to the school because their kid's sick. I mean, maybe they are really an idiot. I don't know. But I find <laughs> if, I, if, if I give people like a, a little space for some grace and go, you know what? I got to let them in there. Something's happening in their life. Mine's okay today. And then you can expect that when you do need it. And I know I sound like Pollyanna. No, actually, Lorraine, I was just thinking about how nice that sounds. And then I, I also need to do more of that. I just have a little bit of grace to say, okay, that person is behaving like a moron, but maybe they have something going on that I don't know about. There's frequently, it's not personal, you know, it's not against you. It's somebody usually having a bad day and there are idiots who are terrible drivers and they're dangerous and sure. they're racing and all that. Oh no, take, take their licenses away and never give them back. I, I get it. Agreed. But for most, most of us, it slips. It's a problem. It, it's oops or a bad day. And if we can just make some room for that, I think the roads might be a little safer, maybe. Well, let's see. We'll try. I'll try that, Lorraine. We'll see how it goes. Listen, (laughs) thanks so much for your time. (laughs) Thanks, Amy. That's Lorraine Sommerfeld. Lorraine is an auto columnist for driving.ca. She's been writing about uh, the issue of these cameras that are in use right now. They're trying them out in Australia. Could come here. And these are cameras. They're not red light cameras. They're not speed cameras. They go beyond that. These are cameras that can be set up to see if you are using your cell phone behind the wheel while you're driving, like just in in traffic, moving along, yeah, be able to tell if you use your your phone, and then you get a ticket for that. Now that's going one step, right, beyond the red light, the speed cameras, which people are already kind of upset about, but Lorraine feels like we have no choice, that people were so terrible out there on the roads, that we're not nice to each other, we don't give each other the benefit of the doubt, people are still using their phones, they are distracted, they're looking at their touch screens. There's a lot going on. So what do you think of that idea? Do we now need to even police that? Because we have had cell phone camera laws now using them behind the wheel or cell phones, I should say, uh, behind the wheel um, for years. And it just doesn't seem to be getting better out there. I don't know. I still see an awful lot of people using their phones. 